we'll introduce today's speaker. Uh, and let me remind you, of course, as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. In 1917, the German Empire had won its war on the Eastern Front by imposing humiliating terms on Russia. It then mounted a giant spring offensive on the Western Front in 1918 to crush the weakened Allied armies. U.S. Marines of the American Expeditionary Force helped blunt that German thrust and turn the tide. The Germans would, of course, surrender less than five months later. The pivotal action took place in June. In fact, we're in June now, in the midst of this anniversary, 94 years, I think, at the Battle of Belleau Wood in northern France. The bloodiest, fighting it was a, the bloodiest fighting involving American troops since the Civil War. Perhaps as much as any engagement in which Marines had taken part, Bella Wood cemented their reputation for doggedness, bravery, and esprit de corps. Today's speaker will describe this dramatic chapter in Marine Corps history and in America's participation in World War I. Patrick Mooney is Visitor Services Chief at the National Museum of the Marine Corps and a good friend of the Society. Last fall, some of you may have been in the audience when he taught a popular class here on the history of the Marine Corps. So please join me in welcoming to the stage Pat Mooney, who will talk to us about the Battle of Bella Wood and U.S. Marines. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Outstanding. I'm very, very, very pleased and honored to be here today and talk about uh, a favorite subject, which is the uh, United States Marine Corps at the Battle of Bella Wood. Um, four Marines uh, and being a Marine. Uh, how many Marines we got in the audience? Hoorah! All right, we're all taught about Bella Wood. We're all taught about Bella Wood at boot camp. We're taught about Gunnery Sergeant Dan Daly raising his rifle over his head and his immortal cry, come on you sons of bitches, you want to live forever? We're taught about the dogged defense and the assault on a one-acre wood and uh, where the Marines earn their spurs on an international stage. And today we're going to explore that battle, and uh, we're going to get a little bit in depth, and we're going to take a look at what that battle meant to the Marine Corps and, uh, and how the Marines went about winning that battle, which is part of a larger action uh, known as the Ain Marne Defensive and Offensive Action, which took place, as Paul said, in, uh, in the spring, May and June of 1918. It would help if I turned on my little slide advancer. There we go. So as Paul said, um, all of this comes about uh, by way of a series of advances uh, that the Germans are making. Um, uh, strengthened by the defeat of the Russians on the uh, Eastern Front, uh, the German army begins to pour in divisions into France, and they strike at the weakened English and French armies. The goal is to drive a wedge between the, the English army to the north and the, and the French army to the south, drive on Paris and end the war before America can bring our full weight to bear on, uh, the, uh, on the Western Front. Now, America's declared war in April of 1917 uh, as a result of a number of German actions, unrestricted submarine warfare, sinking of the Lusitania, as well as the Zimmerman Telegraph, which is a German offer to Mexico to attack America to keep America out of coming into the European war. 
So these blows are struck starting in March of 1918. America has been in the war for less than a year, and we have hundreds of thousands of troops in France training, but very few that actually have combat training. And the blows are going to strike in these little bulges here, up in the north against the British, farther south along the Somme. This is the site of the famous battles in 1916 where the British Army lost 60,000 men killed in one day. Down farther south is where uh, they, uh, the Germans break through right on that hinge between two armies, the French Army to the south and the English Army to the north. The weakest point in any military organization is the joining point between two units, in this case, two nations. So these three hammer blows strike, and they drive the, the French and the English back, and the French and the English are reeling on their heels. Now, at this point, there are three combat-ready divisions in France. They happen to be the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Infantry Divisions. When this blow strikes, and you can see here that the advance is sizable between this slide and that slide. Paris is here. And the blow strikes in this area through the French army, weakened by, by morale uh, and, and hard fighting. Uh, the French army breaks uh, around the city of Rennes, the ancient cathedral city. And in this bulge right here is the greatest threat. Only about 50 miles from Paris, the German army is in sight of the capital, and they can smell victory. And here, the French 6th Army on, under General Duchesne is, uh, is in place, and he goes along with uh, General Field Marshal Foch to General Pershing, and he says, General, we are in desperate straits. Our army is, is demoralized and, and broken. We need America's help. And with tears in his eyes, Foch, who'd been an adamant opponent of American independence in command on the Western Front, Foch and the British Army commander, Field Marshal Haig, wanted America to send bodies to France, to be integrated, individual young American men, to be integrated into individual French and English formations as, as, uh, as uh, reinforcements within their organization. General Pershing and, and President Wilson both said, no, we will fight as an independent army, and America did train and prepare as an independent army. And with hat in hand, Field Marshal Foch asks for America's assistance. Pershing looks to, to Foch and Duchesne and turns and says, I will give you everything I have available. It is not much, but I will give you everything I have. And he immediately orders all forces in the available area to concentrate on that little star, the area around Shadow Thierry and a little tiny sleepy village known, known as Bellot. Bello in France means good water. It's the site of the freshest water in Europe, according to uh, scientific surveys. Uh, and it's going to be the scene of the fiercest fighting thus far for Americans on the, uh, on the Western Front. So who's gonna, uh, who are we going to be talking about here? Well, we're going to be talking about one of those three divisions that uh, Pershing had available. And it's going to be the 2nd Infantry Division, and it's going to be entitled R.A., RA is regular army. That means that these are not volunteer formations. Uh, they're not National Guard like the 29th Infantry Division. 
It's not a national army division, which are draftees. And uh, they're going to be supposedly regular army troops. And within this organization is going to be a brigade of infantry, the 9th, 23rd, and the 5th Machine Gun Battalion, and the 4th Marine Brigade, composing of two regiments of infantry, the 4th, 5th, uh, and 6th Marines, and a battalion of machine guns. Every man in this organization, with few exceptions, there were some Army officers who served within the brigade. Uh, these are going to be Marines, and they're going to be integrated into this very large formation. About 32,000 men in an American Army division, which is three times the size of a European division of the time. The difference between an American division and a European division, very simply, is that we had machine gun troops, we had artillery, we had supply, ammunition, ambul ambulance companies, and field hospitals. An American division could fight almost like a European Army Corps with all the integrated elements of a division uh, for combat already included in it. And the meeting place where all of this is going to come through is our subject today, Bellow Wood. The Marines, at the time that the Germans strike south of Rennes, they're in training. Uh, and they're out actually near the town of Verdun, the site of the horrific uh, 1916 battle where the Germans and French battled with a million casualties uh, in that battle, the bloodiest battle of the First World War. And the uh, American 1st Infantry Division has performed an admirable fight to seize a small village north of Paris called Cantigny. And uh, they've been bloodied, but they need a rest. So the 2nd Division is ordered to make its way south of Paris to rest camp in preparation to go ahead and uh, relieve the 1st uh, the uh, Infantry Division near the village of Cantigny. Uh, they proceed north of Paris. Uh, near the town of Pontois, when they get the word that the 2nd Division is to go into combat, and the 2nd Infantry Division is going to be the primary unit that's going to blunt the assault by the Germans in the area of Chateau Thierry and Bella Wood. So rather than heading north to, uh, to this area here to relieve the 1st Division, they get countermanded with their orders, and they begin to march back towards the battlefront. Now, a series of orders is detailed out to the, to the units of the 2nd Division, uh, and uh, the orders come from the French command. The 2nd Division is placed under the command of General Duchesne, and the orders are the 2nd Infantry Division is to proceed at all speed to the village of X. Unfortunately, half an hour, an hour later, village X has already been taken by the Germans. Another dispatch is sent out by motorcycle uh, and it catches the division on the road and says, don't go to X, go to village Y. And this takes place over the course of three days where the division is marching and countermarching back and forth and back and forth. And in the course of this, the original intent, remember we have two brigades of infantry in this division. The third brigade, which is the regular army brigade, and the fourth brigade, which are marines. The intent is for the 3rd Brigade to arrive at the battlefront first with the 4th Brigade in support to cover the battlefront and help to stop, blunt the German assault, and then to go ahead and uh, start to repel the Germans. 
Well, with all these countermanding orders back and forth marching, things get mixed up. And the 4th Brigade ends up the first ones to arrive. And they arrive along this little tiny road uh, called the Paris-Metz Highway. It's now known in France as the N3, but this was a straight road from Paris to the, to the German border, uh, the town of Metz. And the Marines proceed with all dispatch aboard these things, which are called camions. They're trucks. And the Marines had a saying that they knew that uh, things were going to get bad whenever the camion showed up, and they didn't have to march to where they were going. So they jump aboard these trucks, and these trucks are, they have no springs. They're, they're very, very, uh, they're, they're uh, very utilitarian. And the wheels, it's hard to see here, but the wheels are not pneumatic. They don't have air in them. They're solid rubber tires. And the drivers for these trucks are all Cochin um, volunteers. And Cochin um, and Animes volunteers became, in the 1950s and 60s, a place we call Vietnam. And it was a French colony at the time. And one of the drivers during the Second Battle of the Marne, as this became known as, uh, was a fellow who later in 1919 sues for Vietnamese independence. And his name was Ho Chi Minh. Whether he drove the Marines to the battlefront or not, we don't, we're not really sure. But certainly he was involved in the Second Battle of the Marne as a French colonial volunteer. So the Marines rushed to the battlefront along this very, very narrow road. And you can see this down here in the lower left-hand side. Um, it's a very narrow road. There's not a lot of space on this road. So as they're driving to the battlefront, what's coming the other way? There, there's the detritus of war. We have French civilians fleeing with all their personal belongings. It's the very young and the very old. Every French male from 15 to 60 is involved in war work of some kind. Many of the women that are traveling this road are draped in black because they're widows. France suffers horrendously during the First World War. Much like the American Civil War, uh, every French village has a monument to the dead of that war. So they rush their way to the battlefront, and here's what we're talking about. This is a period map that belonged to a Marine officer, and there's not a lot of detail on it. It's hard for you all to see, but up close... This is the Paris-Metz Highway right here that goes to Chateau Thierry. And our battlefield is all north of here. And this is Bella Wood. And this is the little village of Lucy Lobacage. And the first meeting point that they're going to go to is a, little, is a village called Montreux-Oléans. And this is the town hall, the Marais, in 1918. And this is the town hall in 2004 during my last visit. And the Marines arrive along this road and they get there and the brigade commander is in his uh, in his touring car and uh, he's waiting for the brigade to arrive in the elements of the division and the fourth brigade arrives first and contrary to the battle plan which we always said that the battle plan never survives the first shot of combat uh, the fourth marines arrive and they are placed at the at the point of most dire need, which is north of that Paris-Metz highway. When the Army Brigade eventually arrives, by a trick of fate, their motorcycle runner gets lost. So the orders for the 3rd Brigade don't arrive in time, 
and the 4th Brigade makes it there first. The 3rd Brigade is placed south of the battlefield. Now, this is nothing to denigrate the conduct of the 3rd Brigade and the, and the troops of the 3rd Infantry Brigade. They were beloved of the Marines and vice versa. But they fight in an area that's just out of the scope of, of our battlefield today. And here's a shot that's one of my, my favorites. This is an actual shot of the Marines disembarking from those camions. Uh, they are traveling down that road. And uh, can anybody tell me the difference in these uniforms versus the raincoats that these guys are wearing? They're wearing darker uniforms. They're wearing actually forest green uniforms, which are the, col the colors of the uniforms of the Marines that are going to fight at Bella Wood. The vast majority of Marines are going to be wearing their forest green uniforms. And what you see here is jubilant, joyful Marines getting out of the, uh, out of the trucks, headed to the battlefront. These first two trucks are empty. The third truck is being emptied right now, and the fourth truck is in the process. And that stream of trucks goes down that road, and you can see how narrow that Paris Metz Highway is. And the Marines are on their way to the battlefront to meet the enemy and to, and to blunt their attack. And this is the battlefield, and I, I refer to this as a battle of many parts. The Battle of Bella Wood is actually going to take place over the course of nearly four weeks. And in many times in the past, and certainly during the Second World War, a battle that lasted this long would be referred to, especially in Europe, as a campaign. And uh, what we're going to explore is the various actions that made up the Battle of Bella Wood, and we're going to kind of go through it chronologically. But to put everybody in frame of reference, that picture that we had of those Marines getting off of the truck occurred right about here, down at a little place called Paris Farm. And they're going to get off their truck. Those are all Marines of the 5th Marine Regiment. And they're going to get off the trucks, and they're going to go up these roads, and they're going to go in around the village, uh, the little farmhouse of La Mer Farm, and they're going to go into the area of Champion and down into this little wood line right here, and that's called the Bois Saint-Martin. The battlefield is going to be the wheat field here, Bella Wood itself, which is a one-square-mile hunting preserve. And it's the hunting preserve for the Comte and Comtesse of Bocaron. And uh, they are the local nobility. Well, they're the local nobility since 1798, when the original Comte and Comtesse de Bocaron lost everything from the neck up. And they live in a little village right here called Belleau. And they have a chateau, beautiful chateau there. And uh, this is going to be his hunting preserve. They're going to hunt wild boar and deer, and there's a hunting lodge in the middle of this, which is going to turn out to be a German strong point and a headquarters. The little village of Beresh, which is right over here on the right flank. So our battle line is going to stretch from Lemaire Farm across Champion all the way to Bella Wood and down to Beresh. And the first contact. Those regiments, uh, th those regiments of the 4th Brigade get off of their trucks, and the 5th Regiment goes out on the left flank. 6th Regiment goes out on the right flank. They're going to go ahead and uh, split the battlefront. The 5th Marines from Le Maire Farm all the way down to the little village of Lucy Le Bocage. And the 6th Marines are going to take up from Lucy and all the way across through Triangle Farm 
and down to this little wood line where they're going to meet up with the Army Brigade, a place called the Bois de Clarembeau. And on that left flank, on the 3rd of June, the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, is going to go in uh, and they're going to begin to emplace themselves with bayonets and, uh, and helmets and their little pack shovels that they've got. They're going to start digging fortifications, little fighting holes that one of the guys remarks, reminds him is a foxhole back home when he was uh, hunting in the country. And the name sticks and becomes known as foxholes from there forward. This, this view here is from the German lines. And what we're seeing is the village of Torsi and a little wood line here. And then up on this hilltop on the left-hand side is an area called Hill 142. The Bois de Mer, and then on the ridge line right there is actually Le Mer Farm. And that's going to be the subject of our first action. So this is the battlefield as it looks today. Um, the, uh, this is from Google Earth. You can go into Google Earth and type up Bella Wood or zoom in on France and you'll find all these little bookmarks that I put across the, uh, the battlefield here. And you can see it's made up mostly of wood, little wood lots and open fields. And for the battlefield here at Le Maire Farm, we're looking at a range here between Le Maire Farm and the wood line here at the bottom there, we're looking at about 1,280 meters. Uh, excuse me, 800 meters, 1,280 yards. Uh, Le Maire Farm, as it, as it exists today, is going to be the center point of the defense of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. We're going to put four companies of Marines from the left flank, the 18th uh, and 43rd companies, then we're going to have the 55th and the 51st Company Marines. And they're going to be stretched across this panorama right here. And from this line, they're going to dig in and they're going to await the Germans. And while all of this is happening on the 3rd of June, the French are putting up as, as good a fight as they can. And the French are fighting and retreating and coming back and reestablishing lines. But a French major in a staff car comes riding up this road from the little town of Boussier. And he comes up this road and he runs right into the middle of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines lines. And he comes up to a lieutenant and he says, Lieutenant, Labashi C, the Germans are here. Allez, allez, get out of here, get out of here. And the officer goes, whoa, wait a second. You got to talk to my, my skipper, my company commander. You, I, I can't do anything about that. So he calls over his company commander, a fellow by the name of Lloyd Williams. And Captain Lloyd Williams from Berryville, Virginia, comes over and talks to the, the, uh, the French major, and he repeats his exhortation. The, the Germans are here, La Bashi Sea. You must, you must retreat. you got to retreat. And Williams, with great ironic humor, looks at him and goes, retreat? Hell, we just got here. <laughs> the French major drives on. Immediately thereafter, Lloyd Williams writes a note to his regimental commander, Logan Feeland, and he says, uh, Lieutenant Cordry and myself uh, encountered a, uh, a French major who ordered us to retreat. We declined the order. Please see that the French do not shorten their distance. His fear is that the French, having given the order to retreat, are going to think, oh, there's nobody there. It's only Germans and the French are going to order their artillery on the marine lines at Le Maire Farm. 
Lloyd Williams' exhortation becomes one of the greatest stories and legends in Marine Corps history. So here's the battle position, that first engagement, the morning of the 4th of June, 1918. Cool, misty day, fog rising off of the wheat fields. Wheat about waist high to chest high. Now, wheat is planted in Europe differently than we planted here. They didn't use cultivators and, and cedars. They cast the seed in an open field, in a roughly plowed field. And so when the wheat grew, it didn't grow straight up in nice, neat rows. It grew tangled and across. And many was the account of Marines fighting at this battle who said that it was like wading through an ocean to push your way through this wheat. And they would have to take their foot and almost cut their way through and press down the wheat so that they could advance. It provided both cover and an obstacle to the advance of both the Marines and the Germans, as we see. So at about, uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, a, uh, another Virginian by the name of Lemuel C. Shepard uh, takes a small group of Marines out, and he goes out about 300 yards out in the middle of this field from the uh, Marine line. And they're behind a little tiny tree in a shell hole. And he's looking out, and all of a sudden, he sees movement on the tree line. And just as pretty as a picture, the Germans step out of that wood line in neatly aligned rows. They walk out into the wheat field, pressing themselves through the wheat as they start to advance. Shepard waits as long as he can out in the wheat field. He runs back and uh, gives the, uh, the word to his company commander, John Blanchfield, and says, John, the Germans are coming, but I'm a little worried about those boys that are out there, so I'm going to go back out and see how they're doing. And Lieutenant Shepard's runner goes out with him, by the a private by the name of Pat Martin. And uh, Private Martin and Lieutenant Shepard make their way back out, and the Germans are closing in. And so Shepard gives the order, hold your fire. We're going to wait. We're going to wait. And all of a sudden behind him, he starts to hear the crack of a rifle. And well-armed, uh, well-aimed and, and steady rifle fire begins to erupt at about 1,000 yards from the, uh, from the uh, Marine position. And the Germans, as they're making their way through the wheat, all they hear is, and men begin to fall in the wheat. And in, in the distance, they hear a rifle crack. The Germans look around. They've never experienced aimed accurate rifle fire at this kind of distance. More thuds into the bodies of the Germans. And the Germans realize they're being hit from the military crest of that hill a thousand yards away. The Germans go to ground. They start to maneuver. They start to send machine guns up on the right flank to try and outflank the, the Marines on the left, the 18th Company. And they make their way through that wheat bit by bit by bit by bit. Uh, and they get to within about 300 yards, about the position where Lieutenant Shepard is, when he gives the order to skedaddle back to the line. Shepard rises up, and he feels something wet, a sting on his neck, and he realizes he's been shot in the neck. His first inclination is to see if he can speak, because if he speaks, he's going to be okay. He hasn't cut anything vital. So he speaks and spits, and there's no blood. But he's taken a gash, and it's just missed his jugular and his windpipe by millimeters. His private... Uh, Private Martin bandages him up, and they start to head back. And in the course of it, Martin and another Marine are killed on their retreat back to the line. 
They get back to the, uh, to the position there, and the Marines are going to hold their fire. And when the, the French, uh, excuse me, the Germans, French were another war, uh, when the uh, Germans get to within 100 yards of this line, now 100 yards for an 03 Springfield 30-06 rifle is dead close. The Marines open up, and they just pour fire into these guys. They have very little machine gun support. They only have about four machine guns that are supporting their entire effort. And they pour fire into the Germans and drive the Germans back. The Germans fall back about 300 yards, mount another assault. They man manage to mount three subsequent assaults, each one of them repulsed. And in the process of this, they gather up one of the fallen Marines, take his body back for, uh, for identification. They have no idea who they're, they're uh, shooting, uh, they're fighting against right now and who's shooting at them. Examination of the, of the body indicates that he's a United States Marine. They have no idea what this is, but it comes to play later on. So by the evening of June 4th, the left flank is secured. And the Germans advance not one step closer to Paris after the 4th of June, 1918. And then there's a pause. Each side goes ahead and begins to get themselves together. They consolidate their position. The Germans do what the Germans do best. The Germans pull back to the best and most advantageous ground, and they dig in. And they dig, and they dig, and they dig in well. And every tree line and every hump of ground that's a millimeter above the surrounding ground is fortified with machine guns, maxims, with uh, mortars and artillery pieces in support. And the Germans turn this area into a veritable fortress from all the way from Boussier to the town of Beresh on the German left flank, the Marine right flank. And during those two days, both sides kind of poke at each other, trying to figure out, well, just exactly what do we got in front of us? And by taking prisoners and collecting information from the dead, we determined that we're facing elements of about three different German divisions. We find that there are four regiments that are in primary combat, and the largest of these and the, and the most experienced is the 464th, uh, 461st Regiment that's going to fortify Bellowood itself uh, and, uh, and the surrounding area. So the Marines decide, okay, we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to come up with a battle plan. And the person that's going to do this is, go is going to be a person by the name of James Harbord. Now, General Harbord is the brigade commander of the Marines at Bella Wood. And Harbord is not a Marine. He's a soldier. He's an old cavalryman, West Point graduate. He was the chief of staff to General John Pershing. And it was Harbord and his brilliance that established the services supply, the supply lines that were going to bring in troops and ammunition and weapons to the uh, American Expeditionary Force. But Harvard wants a combat command. And Pershing says, General, I'm going to give you the Marine Brigade. They've just recently lost their, their brigade commander. And if they fail, I'm, I'm giving you the finest brigade in the Army. And if they fail, I'll know who to blame. So Harvard takes command a little while before this battle. And uh, so 
by virtue of the intelligence that they gather, June 6 is going to be the day of the massive attacks all along the front for the 4th Marine Brigade. And it's all going to start on the left-hand side over here, a place called Hill 142. And this is just over to the right-hand side of Lemaire Farm. And uh, on this hillock right over here, oops, sorry. On this hillock right here, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines is going to assault. And they're going to take four companies into combat, and they're going to assault across an open field into a wood line, seize that hilltop, uh, and secure that left flank now uh, against uh, all German uh, possession so that the attack later in the day against Bella Wood will not be sub, uh, subjected to plunging fire from the 460th Regiment into the flank of the Marines as they go across from the Bois Saint-Martin to Bella Wood. So here's our battlefield today. <clears throat> Identical to what it was in 1918. The Marine positions are going to be in this wood line right here. We're going to have two companies online because two of the other companies were detailed in the back to be reserves, and they haven't made it up to the line yet. So in the battlefront, we're going to have the 67th Company on the left flank and Captain George Hamilton and his 49th Company on the right flank. And this is the wood line in 1918. And that view across about a 300-yard open wheat field. So the morning dawns bright on the 6th of June. 67th Company and 49th Company are in the wood line. The commanding officers of both companies, Captain Hamilton and Captain Crowther, step out in front of their lines into the open field. The first sergeants of both companies step out. We've got an, an incredible account by a Marine that was present of the conduct of one first sergeant, Daniel Amos Hunter, known as Pop Hunter, because he's 37 years old. <clears throat> Pop Hunter steps out in front of the 67th Company on the left flank with a, uh, a cane underneath of his arm and a whistle in his mouth. He steps out smartly. He looks to his right. He looks to his left, makes sure his troops are aligned, turns around and admonishes a couple of Marines, Mooney, what do you think you're doing? Button up your blouse. <laughs> and with the blow of a whistle, they step out into the wheat field. Surviving German testimonies, uh, testimonies say that it was the most beautiful thing those German soldiers had seen in the course of the war. Two perfectly aligned companies, sounds vaguely familiar, stepping out of a wood line into an open field. We're fighting a war with 20th century technology and virtually 18th and 19th century battle tactics. And both companies go out into the field, and their goal is to cross over to that wood and take the German guns and seize that position and hold that position. And what happens, in fact, is a bloody massacre. They're meant to go straight up the middle, and the Germans hold their fire till they get about halfway across the field. And, of course, the first men hit are the men in front. Captain Crowther, commanding the 67th Company, is killed. Pop Hunter is wounded and falls to the ground, gets up is wounded a second time and gets up a third time to lead his group 
One of the lieutenants in the 67th Company, a fellow by the name of Lieutenant Jonas Platt, later to become a general officer in the Marine Corps, runs up to Pop Hunter and he goes, Pop, where are the officers? And, uh, and Pop Hunter's reply is, I'm the only officer, the rest are deado. And he takes a few more steps and takes a round in the head and dies, falls to the ground. His leadership, though, has energized what could have been a disaster for the 67th Company. And rather than attacking straight across this wheat field, almost like a, a water hose against a pile of dirt, the two companies are parted and they go off on the flanks. And both companies, this area right here is a little hill. And there's a grade, a slope on either side of this hill. And as the companies go across, they start to meander off to the right and left to try and find some uh, secure position in which to fight. <clears throat> the, uh, this and later testimony from Marines in their oral histories say they were, it was advancing against a heavy rainstorm. Each Marine tucked down his steel hat, put his shoulder into the storm, and made his way across the wheat field, pushing his way through the, re the wheat. Uh, they get to the ground, squad rushes, they begin to make their way across, and each company, going off on to the right and left, succeeds in getting around the flanks of the Germans. Now that wood line right here that the Germans are holding has 72 German machine guns, almost hub to hub, against these two companies. And 67th Company goes off to the left, swings around and takes the Germans from the flank. 49th Company makes its way across to the right-hand side. Elements begin to come out, and Captain Hamilton makes his way across an open field to try and see how deep is the German, uh, the German defense. <clears throat> makes his way all the way near to the village of Torsi. And he gets close to Torsi, and he sends a couple of Marines out front, and they make their way to a little barn that's right at this crossroads right here. And they get into that barn, and uh, they engage the Germans. One of the guys is wounded. Two stay behind. The third Marine goes back to uh, Captain Hamilton, and he comes back and tells Captain, We're, we got Germans all around us. You know, Smith and Jones need help. Well, Captain Hamilton's got himself a... A, a, a real battle as well because the Germans have now infiltrated into this wood here and along this wood line and they're taking his Marines that are in this trench uh, uh, in the flank. So he has to wait as long as he can. Then he pulls himself back and makes his way back in. The end of the day finds 67th and 49th Company in possession of the wood, but those two Marines are still missing. 1922, time goes on. The farmer decides, you know, I'm going to tear down that old busted up barn of mine. And when he's clearing the, rebel, uh, the rubble and remains of that barn, he finds the body of the two Marines surrounded by about eight Germans uh, that they had died uh, uh, fighting. And uh, so the Marines are buried in the nearby cemetery and the Germans are buried close by in the German cemetery as well. But by mid-morning, June 6th, Hill 142 is in possession of the Marines and their left flank for the major assault, which is going to be uh, against Bella Wood 
is in place. And the epicenter of that assault on Bellawood is going to be a little sleepy village by the name of Lucy Lobocage, which means translated Lucy of the Hedgerows. Okay. Um, I wonder how Lucy got the nickname. I'm not saying anything. This is the town today. This is what it looked like in 1918. The church, the little water point right here off on the, the right-hand side, and this is looking in the door. This is about a 12th century little freshwater uh, uh, a spring that flows into the middle of Lucy Lubacage. And this is going to be only one of two water points during the entire Battle of Bella Wood that are going to be accessible to the Marines that are fighting in, uh, in uh, Bella Wood. So it's important to remember this because this counters uh, some myths about uh, the bulldog, famous Bulldog Fountain at Bella Wood. The battle plan for that day, we move to the center here. 5 o'clock, June 6, 1918. The order is transmitted to assault across the open fields into Bella Wood proper. There are going to be three battalions in the assault. On the left-hand flank, under Major Barry, is going to be the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. On his right flank is going to be the... Uh, uh, 2nd Battalion, 6 Marines, under Thomas Holcomb. And uh, in between the two of them is going to be the battalion of uh, Barton Sibley, and that's going to be the 3rd Battalion, 6 Marines. So it's going to be three simultaneous... Bloody pointer. <clears throat> you know, I hate technology that's smarter than me. Three prongs to assault in and seize Bella Wood. Three battalions against the German defenders. The only problem is, is that the order is promulgated at about midnight on June the, uh, the 5th, but it doesn't get to a number of the units until a half hour before they're supposed to attack. And so the units aren't all in position, and not everything is set. You know, this is the first combat for the 4th Marine Brigade. And the staff is a little untried, and they're, little, they're just a little unpracticed, inexperienced in, uh, in this art of maneuver warfare. And uh, the order is also not given for any artillery barrage to prepare the German positions. The idea is, we'll just stand out in the field, we'll blow our whistle, and we'll march across that field, and the Germans will be surprised when we pounce on their machine gun positions. Well, you can guess what happens. The first attack is by the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines on the left flank. We're standing on a little road between the village of Lucy, Lobacage, and Torsi, where those two Marines uh, were isolated and killed in that barn. And they're going to attack across this long, open plain across this sparse orchard to the wood line in the distance over here. And you can see you're going to be going uphill. So the Germans are up high, as they usually were in the defensive. And the Marines step out with a smart whistle blow by uh, the, the commander, Major Barry. In fact, the far left company of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, never gets the order to attack. 
17th company is sitting in the forest in the woods, getting a bite to eat, drinking uh, some water. When they look to the right and they hear the whistles and they see the rest of their battalion stepping out in the field. And Lieutenant, uh, the lieutenant in command of the, of the company turns and goes, well, boys, I guess we're going. They all stand up and they charge out into the wheat field. And they make their way across and the Germans hold their fire. And they make their way all the way across from that wood line to this little road where they pause and realign and the Germans hold their fire. They begin to advance, and they cross past this orchard in fine order, skirmish order, each small formation in the shape of an X as they're making their way across, five Marines uh, in each assault group. And when they get right to the edge where that ground starts to rise, and their heads pop up over top of that rise as they make their way, the Germans open fire, grazing machine gun fire, waist high, cutting the wheat back and forth. There's estimates that just facing 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, there are about 65 German machine guns. And they're interspersed with rifle positions. And the Germans are picking them apart. The Marines go to ground. They dive into this wheat. They start to make their way through the wheat. They're pushing the wheat to the side, and every time the wheat moves, the Germans zoom in on where that wheat is moving, and they start firing at that position. The cries of the wounded Marines uh, as they're struck and die or lay wounded. And in and amongst the command group near Major Barry is a fellow by the name of Floyd Gibbons. And that's Floyd Gibbons right up there. And Gibbons is not a combatant. He's a newspaper reporter. He's with the Chicago Tribune, and he's accompanying Barry into battle. And before he goes into battle, he writes his dispatch of the battle. Marines gloriously assault and take Bella Wood. Marines in a hand-to-hand -hand fight seize the woods from staunch German defenders. Glory for the United States Marines. And he writes this and gives it to his friend, who happens to be the... Uh, news censor, the public relations censor for all outgoing news for the 2nd Infantry Division. And he hands him the report and he says, look, if I don't make it out of this battle, see that this gets uh, published. And sure enough, his premonition nearly comes true. As Gibbons is advancing, uh, they see the German machine guns open up, Major Barry in the forefront, uh, leading from the front, a battalion commander in the assault, 10 steps ahead of his, his uh, battalion, raises his hand and says, follow me. And Barry, struck in the wrist by a German machine gun bullet, travels down his arm and out his elbow, nearly severing his hand. Barry goes to the ground, fallen, seriously wounded. All the other Marines go to ground, and uh, Barry tries to get up. And from his prone position, Floyd Gibbons yells to the crowd, uh, to Major Barry, Barry, for God's sakes, stay where you are, we'll come get you. And he begins to inch his way through the wheat. And all of a sudden he feels a sting on his shoulder. And he reaches over and looks and pulls his hand away. Well, there's no blood. I don't know what I did, but ow. Seconds later, another sting, higher up near his collarbone. And he reaches over, 
and puts his finger into a hole in his shoulder, but pulls it out and there's no blood. Okay. Uh, so as the rifle and machine gun fire gets closer, Gibbons does what every other Marine is doing in that field, and he takes his head and body and puts it as close to the ground as possible. He later says, I could get no closer to the ground unless I removed my buttons. And he takes that flat tin hat that they were wearing, and he turns it cattywampus, puts his head down to the ground with the left side of his face towards the ground to make as low a profile as possible. And then in Gibbons' autobiography, So They Think We Wouldn't Fight, he said, the world went white. A German bullet probably struck the ground uh, or, a, uh, or a rock, ricocheted up and caught him in the, in the corner of his left eye, passed behind his left eye and popped out the bridge of his nose. <clears throat> he lay there for a while and awoke to a sensation of wetness and pain, as you can imagine, kind of an understatement. Uh, he hears his voice being called by his escort, and he calls over and goes, Handley, I'm here. Come to me. I can't move. I think I've been wounded. And uh, Lieutenant Handley makes his way across, and Gibbons is laying on his left side, and he knows that he can't see out of his left eye, and his right eye is caked over with blood, so he thinks he's blind. And he manages to scra uh, scrape away the blood from his right eye as Hanley makes his way through. And as Hanley parts the wheat and looks through at Gibbons, Gibbons said, Hanley's face went white, and I knew I was seriously hurt. Uh, the Germans continued to fire at the dead and wounded. The assault by 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines is blunted and repulsed. And it's not until nightfall that most of the uh, wounded Marines uh, who were there from 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, are evacuated from the field. Gibbons is evacuated, taken back to the field hospital, and then to a hospital in Paris to recuperate. He's lost his left eye, uh, and he's taken rounds through his shoulder and his uh, collarbone. <clears throat> Word passes that he has died. And true to his word, the, the second division censor passes on his newspaper report. And within days, newspapers all around America and across Europe uh, trumpet the triumph of the Marines at Bella Wood. And General Pershing goes crazy. He, from that point forward, he orders several things. Number one, that Marines are not to be mentioned by name or any unit of the American Expeditionary Force, uh, that only that uh, the troops would be to, refer, to be referred to as Americans or AEF troops. Uh, and he bans the use of the Marine Forest Green uniform because it's too distinctive against the khaki of the Army uniform. And he wants uniformity in the ranks, which makes perfect strategic intelligence sense. Because if you've got guys with dark green uniforms and guys with kind of khaki brown uniforms, you're going to learn very soon, as the Germans have now learned, that the Marines are on the battlefront and they're wearing these dark green uniforms. So the assault by the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, is a failure. Simultaneously, in the middle of the assault, to the, just to the right of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, 
uh, is going to be the attack by the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines. And this is going to be Barton Sibley. And 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines attacks across and actually gets across the field. They cross the road from Lucy Lobakaj to Baresh under horrendous machine gun fire, hundreds of machine guns in this position. And on this side of Bella Wood, the south side of the wood, there are huge boulders that the Germans have dug under and they fortified. And again, no artillery preparation. 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines crosses over and this fella up here on the horse, this fellow by the name of David Bellamy, and uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, to acquire his diary, which chronicled his entire time and uh, uh, fighting in France. And on June 6th, he has one notation. We're going into battle. Um, it doesn't look promising. Who knows what the future holds? And then for four days, there are no notations. And on the 10th of June, <clears throat> the first words in his diary are, well, it's over. 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines makes its way across into that southern flank, and the Germans literally bring it in in an envelope and surround it on three sides. And so they're in the wood line, and you may be able to see this high sloping ground here. And they're in this wood line, but the field open to, their, uh, to the Marine lines is completely swept from each flank by interlocking fields of fire. No supplies, no water, and no food can make its way across that field. And by the 10th of June, under cover of darkness, the, uh, the morning of the 10th of June, uh, 9th of June into the 10th of June, uh, Sibley's battalion, what's left of it, makes its way back across to the Marine lines, exhausted, out of ammunition, food, and water. And then on the far right, the third part of that attack on June 6th is <clears throat> the 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, and it's commanded by this fellow right here, Thomas Holcomb. Holcomb's to become future commandant of the Marine Corps, and uh, he's got a pretty impressive group of officers. Uh, in this group of, uh, of Marines standing right here are two future commandants, Randolph McCall Pate and Clifton Cates, both to be highly decorated Marines from the First and Second World Wars. And this fellow right here, who's his adjutant, the battalion adjutant, a fellow by the name of Holland Smith, who later generations of Marines are going to know as Howling Mad Smith, one of our greatest heroes uh, of the Second World War. And the job of the 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, is to seize the wood line right on the right flank of 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines. They're supposed to assault across these fields, 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines is over here, 2nd Battalion is to go in here. But by God, look at that ground. That's rough ground. That's high ground. It's nasty ground. And just like the assault at Hill 142, when they begin to cross over this open field from this wood line here to the southern flank of Bella Wood, they cross over this road. And as they go, they're driven apart from 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines by the German machine gun fire. And they seek cover on the right flank. And as they come out of this little spit of woods, Across this field, their company commander, <clears throat> uh, a fellow by the name of uh, 
uh, Duncan, Captain Duncan, is uh, mortally wounded and, uh, and falls to the ground. Uh, one of his platoon commanders, the fellow up here holding the German grenade, Clifton Cates, native Tennessean, uh, Cliff Cates is going to take command of the scattered elements of the 96th Company on the far right flank of the assault. And he's going to head across this ground right here off of this uh, knoll, and he's going to hit this little ditch on the right flank, and he's going to take that ditch right there into the village of Baresh. He's going to go right along this line in this wood line. He's going to make his way into the center of Baresh. And this is a view from the winter of 1918 from the town of Baresh, looking towards that little knob of woods, the main street, and the railroad station. And Cates leads 20 Marines, 20 Marines, into this town. And the assault is so fierce by these 20 Marines that the Germans up and run. And they retreat all the way back, all the way out, past the railroad station out here. And he holds the center of the town of Baresh with 20 Marines. So he sends five Marines down this road and five Marines down that road and five Marines out this road. And he holds five Marines with him in the center of the town, right opposite the church. And there's the church today and there's the church in 1918. And as he's standing in the middle of that churchyard, in the middle of town with that road network spread out before him, giving orders to hold this town and to send a runner back to get more Marines, a German fires from the uh, this church steeple, clips his epaulet on his uniform and leaves it flapping. Shortly thereafter, another bullet grazes his neck. He's wounded twice within the space of about a half an hour. But he, he lives a charmed life. And he fights throughout every battle on the Western Front with the Marine Brigade, five campaigns. He is wounded three times. The last time at the Battle of Soissons, when a German shell blast blows off his trousers. And he has to wrap a blanket around his waist out of modesty in the middle of the battle. But Baresh is important for another reason. It's also the second of the two water points. There is a little watering trough, a lion's head fountain, right here. And it's in the picture. It's right off on this right-hand side here. And it's going to have fresh water. And so in the middle of the line and on the right-hand flank, these two water points are going to supply water for about 3,200 Marines in the midst of a fierce battle in the middle of a very, very, very hot June of 1918. So Baresh is taken. And we have now the left flank secured at Hill 142 and the right flank secured at Baresh. And a brief foray into Bella Wood that lasts for four days until an exhausted Marine battalion retreats back out. And the, uh, uh, and the Marines are set for the next and final stage of the battle. Just as the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines uh, is pulled back that very afternoon, 
another battalion, the 1st Battalion, 6 Marines, is sent into the battle. And the battalion commander right here, a fellow by the name of Johnny the Hard Hughes, he had a distinct reputation as a, as a stern taskmaster, hence the name, Johnny the Hard. If you're going to be a Marine, what better nickname? He's going to lead his battalion across this same field that 3rd Battalion, 6 Marines assaulted. But now the Germans have reinforced that line, and they have more machine guns. And, uh, and more German soldiers. And as, uh, as uh, uh, um, Hughes' battalion makes its way across the field, they stall about halfway across. And on that high ground behind him is a machine gun company, the 73rd Company uh, of the 6th Machine Gun Battalion. And the company first sergeant is a fellow by the name of Dan Daly right here. Now, by 1918, Dan Daly is a legendary figure. He's the holder, the recipient of two Medals of Honor. He's only one of two Marines in all of our history who've received two Medals of Honor for two separate distinct acts of valor. His first in August 1900 at the Battle of Peking during the Boxer Rebellion. How many people remember the 55 Days of Peking, the movie? Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner. Wow. Any, uh, any relation to truth in that movie is clearly coincidental, but it's a good story. His second Medal of Honor is won in October 1915 in Haiti. So he's a legendary figure. In fact, the Marine that meets him in 1918 says, my God, I thought he was a legend. I thought the Marine Corps made him up like Paul Bunyan. But Daly's the first sergeant of this company, and he sees this entire battalion of Marines stuck, 250 men, give or take, stuck in the middle of this wheat field. And Daly stands in front of his company of machine gunners and raises his rifle, and he says, supposedly, come on, you sons of bitches, you want to live forever. Actually, he says he never said it. He says, I said, come on, fellas, you want to live forever. I didn't need to cuss. Everybody knew who I was. Who I was. Um, and I told my guys, come on, fellas, you want to live forever. And he sweeps off of that hill. And like a magnet through a group of iron filings, his Marines sweep up that battalion, and they sweep into the woods. And with a pistol in one hand, he sweeps in and captures a German machine gun nest, turning the gun on his defenders. Uh, on, the, on the defenders and uh, starts to use it against them. And uh, for this action, Daly is going to be nominated for his third Medal of Honor. And it's going to be promulgated all the way up to General Pershing, who commands the American Expeditionary Forces. And when it gets up there, he goes, by God, no man deserves three Medals of Honor. So it gets knocked down to a Distinguished Service Cross and a Navy Cross. So um, here in this picture, we have Gunnery Sergeant Dan Daly, acting first sergeant, receiving his Distinguished Service Cross with his two Medals of Honor around his neck. There's his uh, Distinguished Service Cross, and the award they've just pinned on him is France's highest award for valor, which is the Medal Militaire. So now we have a foothold in the south part of Bella Wood. And the very next day, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, the same fellows who defended Lemaire Farm, 
through the same exact assault that was repelled by uh, the Germans, Cap uh, Major Barry's assault, and he make it into the woods. And we now have two battalions of Marines inside the woods. And they begin a hand-to-hand -hand slugfest, yard by yard, tree by tree, uh, shell hole to shell hole, trench line to trench line. And for the next two weeks, Marine battalions are going to be ground up and spit out. We have two regiments, six rifle battalions, one battalion of machine guns. And in the midst of this all, the entire Marine Brigade is so worn out that they're going to put a regiment of Army troops, the 7th Infantry Regiment, in to arrest us. But the brigade has to go back into battle when the untested 7th uh, suffers horrendous casualties and loses ground. The Battle of Bellawood inside is a completely different campaign. The Germans are in treetops. They got machine guns emplaced in trees. They've got um, the, uh, uh, every single piece of ground is fortified and protected. The Germans use gas extensively within the wood. And the, gust, the gas is mustard gas and it sticks to their skin. And anywhere that you're sweating and, and you're moist, it's going to raise huge, huge blisters. <clears throat> and if you inhale it, it's going to raise blisters inside your lungs and they're going to burst and you're going to drown in your own fluid. Horrible death. Horrible death. In fact, Marines that I knew that served in France when they died in the 1970s and 80s, their death certificates said died of war wounds from gas. These are those rocks down in the southeast corner. Tremendous, huge, huge rock formations. Glacial formations that the Germans dug into and under. And the battle goes on and on for those next two weeks with you know, battalions and companies of Marines back and forth and back and forth into the line until they get to the edge of the woods in that hunting lodge. That's the German command post, and this is the ancient hunting lodge of the, the Comte de Beaucaron. And uh, when they're here, they're just on the edge of the woods. Here you can see the edge of the wood line and the open fields leading to the village of Bello on the other side. But the Germans' dogged defense continues until finally, on the 26th of June, uh, Major Maurice Shearer, who's now in command of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, the, uh, the old battalion commander having been relieved because of wounds and, and fatigue, issues the immortal cry, Bella Wood, now U.S. Marines entirely. And this view on the top, that panoramic photograph, shows the devastated uh, remains of Bella Wood and the open fields to the village of Bello and the dominant heights of Hill 204 in the distance. In fact, the, the battle is so severe, the scar is so deep on Bella Wood that in uh, 2000, in the, yeah, in the year 2000, a, uh, a severe wind, uh, series of wind uh, blasts that they called the Tempet, like a tornado, runs through Bella Wood and knocks down trees. And as the foresters are going in and cutting up the trees, they're breaking chains in their chainsaws because of the shell fragments that still remain in the trees. The soldier here standing in the ruins of the chateau at Bello, looking towards the wood line, 
and the top of, of Bella Wood, and there, right there, is the hunting chateau, the hunting lodge, that actually is just off to the right-hand side in our top photograph. And the Marines, by the end of the war, decide that some are going to revisit the battlefield. And here we've got three Marines revisiting the grave of their captain. And uh, they placed a wreath that says, uh, rest, in, uh, rip, rest in peace, Captain Ted Fuller, June 11, 1918, uh, on his grave in the temporary cemetery at Bella Wood. To this day, Bella Wood, the valor, service, and sacrifice of the Marines uh, that fought in Bella Wood lasts. Uh, we're taught at boot camp the story of these Marines. We commemorate it at the National Museum of the Marine Corps in our World War I exhibit. And every year on Memorial Day, the Commandant or the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps travels to France, where they speak before a gathering of Americans and French uh, locals, dignitaries from the French Assemblies Nationale, and members and representatives of the French military. The Marine Drum and Bugle Corps and the Marine Silent Drill Platoon travel to France. They commemorate the, the uh, losses at Bella Wood and the surrounding area. The cemetery contains the graves of about 2,500 uh, killed in action and a further mm, 1,500, 1,600 or so uh, missing in action and bodies not recovered. The toll for the Battle of Bella Wood, tremendous. 1,811 Marines killed in action nearly uh, 8,000 wounded on June 6th alone in that one attack at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. More Marines are killed in that one attack than in the entire history of the Marine Corps up to that day. The bloodiest day in Marine Corps history up to that point. The cemetery also contains the grave of one of the two Medal of Honor recipients from June 6, 1918, and that's Whedon Osborne, an Osborne, a doctor, a dentist in fact, who rushes to the aid of fallen Captain Duncan on the right flank as he goes down from a machine gun bullet. And as he's evacuating Duncan to safety at the battalion aid station, is killed along with Duncan by a shell blast awarded the, uh, the first Medal of Honor to a member of the Naval Medical Corps, Lieutenant J.G. Whedon Osborne, and his grave right here. <clears throat> NIS. First Sergeant Daniel Amos Hunter. This photograph, probably this is the first public viewing of this photograph, um, was uncovered from the, uh, the collection of a Marine from the 67th Company who went back at the end of the battle to recover their dead. And he said, quote, unquote, uh, as we were gathering our fallen, a group of officers and senior NCOs lifted a stretcher with a body draped in a blanket. And an old, and an old soldier, meaning Marine, standing nearby turned to me and said, salute 
and take off your cover, there goes Pop Hunter. And this photograph shows the recovery and burial of the body on the stretcher of First Sergeant Daniel A. Hunter of Baltimore, Maryland. And I said there were only two water points, and there were. The myth that the, the mascot of the Marine Corps came from Bellow Wood, that the Bulldog Fountain at Bellow is the model for our Bulldog uh, mascot is, frankly, it's a great story. Uh, it's one of the great and enduring myths of Bella Wood. Here is the Bulldog Fountain. The, uh, the fountain was established by the original Comte de Beaucaron. Uh, he loved his Bulldog Mastiff, uh, his Bull Mastiff dogs. They used to go hunting with him. And uh, so he immortalized them in about the 14th century uh, with a bronze sculpture out of which pours some of the finest water in Europe, the Bell O which is actually, it's very good water. Uh, legend has it that if a Marine drinks from the fountain, they gain 10 years of life. So I expect to be here in about 70 years or so, still lecturing to y'all. <clears throat> and this is the end of that beautiful day of commemoration when the French remember the fallen uh, who helped save Paris uh, and, uh, and France from German domination a massive vendeneur, a wine of honor, in which they, they toast the health of the United States and the Marine Corps. And I give to you, having traveled extensively through the countryside, the people of France, remember, don't judge France by Paris. It's like judging United States by New York. Enough said. And here, one of the surviving buildings at the chateau, and atop it, the replaced weather vane shows a, uh, a French farmer raising his foot and kicking a gentleman in the pants. And it's a tribute by the Beaucaron family uh, showing the Marines kicking the Germans out of Bellot. And uh, it's the weather vane atop the old uh, stables, which are here in the background right here. Thus endeth the presentation. And I apologize, I ran a little long. They, they say if you ask me what time it is, I'll tell you how to build a watch. So questions, anybody have any questions? There are gonna be folks out here with, uh, with microphones. Ed Berkiani, New York City. <laughs> Y'all are going to help me, right? It's a pleasure to be here. I, I uh, have my barricade. <laughs> um, uh, the question I had was, I, I was absolutely fascinated to learn that in 1918, the tactics were still almost a frontal assault tactic versus a maneuver around. And in fact, it sounded like uh, the first part of the battle, the only reason... Uh, the, the taking of the hill was successful was because the Germans actually forced them into a tactical maneuver. Um, th the question is, at what point in time in the history of, of military organizations does the actual maneuver uh, start to have any 
you know, come into the, the whole doctrine of how to conduct battle. Because I would have thought by the end of 1916, you know, after Psalm and, and all of the, mm -hmm. the, the, the major catastrophes, that uh, somebody had learned something. <laughs> well, can you, yeah, I mean, and, and can you just... Absolutely, I mean, uh, and your point is, point is well taken. Remember that America comes into the war and we're woefully unprepared. In fact, um, when America goes to France and goes into battle, the only weapons that we're going to be carrying are, are pistols, our rifles, uh, our bayonets, and that's it. Machine guns, tanks, aircraft are all going to be supplied, grenades are all going to be supplied by the British and the French. And the F British and French wanted us to, as I said before, to be reinforcements for their lines. So when Pershing and his men go to France and they start training, the doctrine is to fight in dispersed formations, in squad rushes. And the British and French, because of that unified command, and the Americans are underneath of Ferdinand Foch, they all go, no, 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 no. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Trust us. We've been fighting this war for four years, which is a perfect reason not to trust them, because <laughs> they've been doing it for four years. And they insist that the tactic, um, the strategy and tactic of you know, lineal formations and um, doing rolling barrages where you have a group of folks that are standing in line and then just in front of them, yards away, there's artillery falling. You can't have people running willy-nilly because you're going to get in your own artillery fire. And uh, so the French and English impose this discipline on uh, all the American troops. And literally, it is the battles of Bella Wood that, that finally lay false this doctrine. And never again will the Americans go forward in these lineal formations. And I, I said that they looked in like an X. They had small, little, what we call fire teams today. But you had a, uh, a PFC, a private first class, and then you had a assault rifleman, a, a grenadier, and then two riflemen in this small, little fighting group, this combat group. And the, the senior man stood in the middle, and then the four guys were on each corner. It's an impractical formation. But this is what was insisted upon. But, you know, the attacks on June 10th and June 11th, by and large, are successful. And, and especially on the right flank with June 6th, when the 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, take Baresh on the right flank, it's because they made small individual rushes. And they fought in, in, in combat teams of two Marines. And you can look at the Battle of Bella Wood as being a battle that was won 16,000 times by two Marines apiece. 32,000 Marines fight this as a small individual uh, two-men action. So does that answer your, your question? Very much so, in many, many ways. And remember, from this point, like Paul said, five months later, la guerre is fini. The war is over. So any other questions? Was, was there ever any artillery support? You indicated that <laughs> initially there was not. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
Uh, yes, on the, uh, the June 10th and the 11th assaults, um, they had learned their lesson. There was no such thing as a surprise assault. And so General Harbert and his team uh, put in extensive and very effective uh, barrages on the German positions. And then as the Marines moved forward into line, they created what was known as a box barrage, which basically blocked off each German sector and kept reinforcements from coming in. So yes, thank you very much. I neglected to mention that. Uh, but yes, on June 10th and 11th, and from that point forward, artillery was a major part of, uh, of the Battle of Bella Wood and resulted in the devastation that we saw at the end of the battle.